I'm Abby. I'm a senior here at Davidson, and I'm going to be reading the scripture for us tonight. It comes from Genesis 2 and 3. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done all this, cursed are you above the livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Hello. <laughs> so, I feel a little bit better tonight. I'm excited about that. Uh, the first large with a cold was no fun. Uh, let me get out of that microphone. I will wreck myself. So, let me do this. Is that good? Okay. So, again, thanks for being here. Um, how are we doing? Multiple choice. Great, bad, or meh? Great. <laughs> So enthusiastic. Good. Okay, so overall great. You guys who didn't actually choose to respond, you've been responded for, which is really exciting. So for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship, which is RUF. Uh, and we, uh, I'll, before I get into what we do, let me introduce again, Maddie, could you raise your hand or stand up? And then Eric is somewhere. Ah, look at that, way in the back corner. Um, 
Those are our interns. Um, they help serve the ministry alongside me. Uh, they and I would love to meet you for coffee or lunch at some point. Uh, we really appreciate you. Uh, want to get to know you. And also there's a bunch of students that are not new um, to RUF that would love to get to know you if you are new or even if you've been around for a while. So if someone says hello to you, don't be creeped out, okay? <laughs> They're just trying to be nice. So uh, what is RUF? RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve this campus, but also you all wherever and however you are. And we mean that. We don't want RUF to be a, a place for one kind of person. We want to serve every kind of person. We want to, you to feel welcomed here no matter what scene you are on campus, where you're from, like personally in background, or even necessarily what you believe. We want you to feel welcome here if you're not sure where you stand or what you think about Jesus or Christianity. Uh, we hope you can feel like this is a space to safely explore or to grow in your faith. And that means whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, uh, a believer or a spiritual skeptic or something in between or none of the above, we're really glad you're here. We hope you feel welcomed and encouraged by um, being here. At least you got a donut. Um, and we hope that you feel like uh, you get to know some people before you leave. And again, I know Davidson's busy, so thanks for taking the time and the risk. Um, and we'll talk about midterms when we get there. But right now, thanks for taking the time and the risk. Okay. So this semester in large group, we're looking at the topic of relationships. Relationships, more precisely, what does Jesus, what in the world does Jesus have to do with my relationships, with my friendships, with my family relationships, with my dating, with sex, with singleness, with marriage, all of those sort of big picture topics that you think about in college. Um, and really, we are studying relationships for that reason. We think that relationships are A, if not the defining characteristic of life. They're so important, uh, especially in college, because we're constantly making relationships and we're constantly evaluating old relationships. And so it's a really important time to do that. Uh, and also the Bible affirms that you could divide all of human life into four fundamental relationships. Our relationship to God, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to each other, and our relationship to the world. And so I think that relationships are a big deal. And last week, we began to look at relationships in a big picture kind of way. We looked at the first stage of the foundation story of relationships, and that was called creation. And we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw how relationships were good in the beginning and continue to be necessary. And through the lens of J.R. Tolkien, uh, that short story, we got a glimpse of where our relationships are all ultimately headed. They're ultimately going to go in one direction, how they will be perfectly fulfilled in what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth, uh, also known as consummation. You're learning a lot of big words there. Creation, okay, then consummation. But, you know, there's so much about our present tense relationships that are not good or perfectly fulfilled. What happened? Like, what happened to our relationships between creation's goodness and the new heavens or the consummation's perfection? Like, what went wrong with our relationships? That's the story that our passage tonight, Genesis chapter 3, is going to tell us. And that's what we're looking at together. But before we look at that together, I'm going to pray one more time. Uh, so would you bow your heads with me, if you're willing. Pray for me as well and with me. Father, thanks for this time. I um, appreciate the students' time. I appreciate the opportunity to open your scriptures. It's a, it's a hard passage, admittedly. And I pray that you'd help us to give us, uh, help us to give this passage the benefit of the doubt that you'd help us to really wrestle with it, to see if it speaks to our life where we are. 
help us to get a little bit honest about where we are. Um, and I pray that you would be with this time, that you would meet people wherever they are, um, whatever posture they're in, uh, that you meet all of us. And Jesus, we just pray that you'd be high and lifted up and that be, you'd be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, no matter where we are. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'm just going to put this out there. I think all of us in this room live in an unresolved tension, an unresolved tension. I almost used the word paradox, but I felt that was strong. Unresolved tension. The unresolved tension is we know that relationships hurt and they don't work properly, but then we long for them dearly. We're cynical about relationships, but then we all listen to Taylor Swift. We're sentimental about relationships and cynical simultaneously. Okay, so we're cynical and sentimental about relationships. Um, So let me give you two examples from my life that illustrate this tension, and maybe that'll help encourage you to go deep into the archives of your life. Uh, Let's start with high school, Sid. I was a junior in high school, same size head, smaller body. Um, And I started getting a little bit worked up about this girl. She was a senior. Her name was Carly. Carly. Maybe this is way too much information about me already, but I was reading this British lit novel, Tess of the Dubervilles. Anyone read that in English class? Uh, And something about the Thomas Hardy story of unrequited love in an English countryside with milkmaids, satiny secrets, and Victorian angst (laughs) combined with my raging high school hormones and made me start to swoon, like just uncontrollably swoon over this girl Carly. So I did what any high school junior in his right mind would do. I asked early and often if she would go to prom with me. (laughs) Until she said yes. And then with the Goo Goo Dolls strumming in the background, I swept her off her feet, or tried to, but all too soon she swooned for another guy. Oof. It gets better. Second relation, second example is much more recent. Uh, this happened just a few years ago, and it involves a chiropractor. <laughs> Two and a half years ago, I officially became middle-aged, and I threw out my lower back. Yes, that happens. In my defense, I was on a mission trip serving Jesus by sleeping on air mattresses. So, I mean, they're a gold star in heaven. Um, so, anyway... After trying denial and then even therapeutic massage, I started going to this chiropractor. For three months, he was like a wonder worker, right? Aside from fearfully cracking my insides in ways I still don't really, can't really understand, he used this combination of small talk, persistent questions, and long, awkward pauses filled with guilt to make me join a gym and stretch my hamstrings and actually build ab muscles. It's amazing how much those three things work to help my back. Um, so, but then my insurance ran out, ran out. I couldn't, wouldn't cover it anymore. And I started to resent the small talk and the internal popping noises that were going on when he was flipping me around. And so a few months later into this process of silently resenting the chiropractor, I talked to a friend who was a doctor at a party and uh, he asked about my back. And I was, and this was over a Triscuit. I was holding a Triscuit. And I sheepishly confessed that I needed to break up with my chiropractor. I was on the other end of a conversation I've had so many times as a college minister. So a few weeks later, over the phone, I boldly talked to my chiropractor's assistant. (laughs) And I said, you know, 
I, I think we need to see other people. It's, it's, no, 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 it's not you, it's me. Okay? And when she pressed me to keep my existing appointment, which they're good at that, I stood up for myself and I said, sure. <laughs> and so a few, days, a few days later, I heard myself saying to my chiropractor, uh, I mean, it's been a really great ride. No regrets here. No regrets. Uh, but it's, it's not like we'll never see each other again, but just not now. Not at, not, not, no, not never, not now. Have you heard that one before? Okay. So, look, whether it's a near romance or, um, or a friendship or even a semi-medical relationship, well, I don't know what you call a chiropractic relationship, can you feel the tension of our sentimentality and cynicism when you start to think about your own stories? The way we want to know and be known, the way we want to love and be loved. Yet at the same time, in the midst of that sentimental longing, we get cynical because we miss people and we're missed by other people and we're hurt and we hurt others. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw how we're made in the image of a sociable God, a he who is a we. So we deep down desire that perfect selfless love that God has between and within himself, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit within the Godhead. But as we're going to see tonight in Genesis chapter 3, betrayal and mistrust go way back as well. And they make so many of our relationships feel so faked and forced and frustrating. And this, re- this relationship dysfunction, the way our desires for connection run into misgivings, misunderstandings, and even conflict, this is not just described in our passage tonight, Genesis chapter 3 tells us the old, old story of why our relationships are a mess. Simply put, when mankind, when humankind fell from intimate and safe relationship with God, we also fell out of intimate and safe relationships with other people. When human beings fell out of a safe and intimate relationship with God, we also fell out of safe and intimate relationships with other people. But Genesis chapter 3 also hints at something uh, about how perhaps these relationships could get better. God has repaired our relationship to him through his son, Jesus. And therefore, we get to experience and share this healing in our relationship with other human beings. So again, we fall out of relationship with God, and that affects the way we fall out with others. And then also at the same time, though, we see in the very end of this story that God starts to repair the relationships, and that moves us to experience and also to share that healing with other people. So we're going to examine these two big, huge ideas, and we're going to look at it sequentially through the flow of Genesis 3's narrative. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, we're going to look at three main plot points. This is your handout, by the way, on your out, the outline on your handout, I should say. So first, in verses 1 through 6, we watch the temptation to fall out with God. And this temptation scene tells us why our relationships don't work. Second, in verses 7 through 19, we're going to watch the way that the fa- there's a fallout from not trusting God. And this scene of consequences tells us how our relationships don't work. And then finally, third, verses 20 through 21, we're going to see how God takes the fall for us. And this intervention scene tells us how Jesus is repairing our relationships. So we're going to begin at the beginning, 
as usual. I want to look first at Genesis chapter one, Genesis three, verses one through six, and the temptation to fall out with God. So look there with me if you would. Verses one through six, they offer us this tutorial on how the words sin and temptation actually work. Those are words we hear a lot in the church. But I love the way that this this scene illustrates them. Notice first in verses one through five how radically different Eve and the serpent's versions of God's command are than the original command given in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. You can look on your handout and see big differences between the, what the serpent says God said and what Eve said God said and what God actually said. The difference is like an x-ray view of the often internal process that goes on in our hearts. Here we see the back and forth of temptation how we can all take God's challenging words to us and then mentally manipulate them for our advantage or even disadvantage. So let me just kind of be honest with what goes in my life. When I come to something disagreeable in the Bible, even as a pastor, I find myself almost immediately reinterpreting the text. I'm pretty sure that God really didn't mean that whole thing about resting from work because, you know, success in ministry makes me look good. (laughs) So why would he ask me to stop doing what makes me look good? It's good to the eyes. It's a delight to the eyes, as Eve says in verse 1, or it says in verse 1. Then temptation leads me to add extra human regulations to God's simple request. He's not just asking me to get rest and get restored. He's telling me to do nothing enjoyable. He's telling me to be absolutely still and have no fun on Sundays. (laughs) And don't even touch that good thing. Right? Verse 3. And finally, I hear a voice in my mind accusing the character of God. Man, is God harsh. I mean, what a control freak. A real cosmic killjoy. He won't let you, Sid, have anything good. I mean, will he? Look at that guy. You want to know why he's being such a jerk? Do you know? It's because he's jealous. And he wants to keep you down. <laughs> compared to him. And we see that process in verses 4 through 5. And so we can see that this eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was much bigger than actually breaking some rule. It was the breaking of a relationship. It wasn't just breaking a rule, it was breaking a relationship. Listen to the way that um, Sally Lowe-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. A shameless plug for the upperclassmen women's study. (laughs) Okay. Here's how she puts it. And again, almost, you can almost go crisscross applesauce in your mind here. So, as soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. And he asked, does God really love you? The serpent whispered, poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. And so Eve and Adam ate the apple. They ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from it and ate the, ate the fruit. And when this happened, according to Sally Lone Joins, A terrible pain came into God's heart. This is her paraphrase. His children hadn't just broken one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And really, this is what sin is all about. At its core, sin is relational. A former counseling professor of mine, Jim Cofield, defines sin as a commitment to go it alone, to not believe that God is good, and to break relationship in order to protect and to provide for the self at the expense of one's relationship to God and others. That's a really complicated definition. I'll say it one more time. 
a commitment, sin is a commitment to go it alone and to not believe that God is good and to break relationship in order to protect and provide for ourselves at the expense of our relationships to God and to other people. In other words, sin tells God, and then everyone else, step off. Step back. Stop breathing over my shoulder. And while you're at it, get off my back already. Leave me alone. I'm the master of my own destiny. No one gets to tell me what to do. You don't get to tell me what's right or wrong. I know for myself what's good and evil. And that's the connection here between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and this passage about sin and temptation. This tree is not a symbol of human evolution, okay? This tree is not a symbol of intellectual or moral maturity. It's a declaration of personal autonomy, our daily decision to substitute ourselves in the place of God. I'm gonna decide for myself how life works best, even though I'm finite and limited. I'm going to decide all these things for myself, even though I possess a mere, uncertain, self-serving slice of knowledge, a decimal point percentage take on a universe expanding faster than the speed of light, a decimal point percentage knowledge of matter that is likely simultaneously smaller than a quark within an electron and getting all the more dense as we speak. But I got this. Exhaustive knowledge is just around the corner. But look, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to show you that sin isn't rational. It's not rational for me. It's not rational for anybody. It's a self-protective measure meant to control our relationships. And it only ends up hurting us along with everyone else, including God. But maybe Genesis 3 only underlines our need for intellectual independence. Maybe this scene in the Bible is like the, the scene that we're the most quick to reinterpret. I mean... Surely God didn't mean that an actual snake actually talks. Surely God didn't mean some enchanted tree, air quotes, like this air quotes magical fruit even exists. But I'm going to like unsettle us a bit if that's okay. Can I do that? Sure. Put, I'm going to push at us just a little bit and ask questions. According to the text, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually a tree. It sprouted from the ground like and with every other tree, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Similarly, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, describes the snake as a beast of the field. So reading the text on its own terms suggests that the tree and the snake are actually a tree and actually a snake. And this means that Genesis 3 isn't just some explanation of why snakes slither on their bellies or why we're like afraid of snakes or don't like them very much. Nor is Genesis 3 to be read like some lovely fairy tale with singing mice and trickster coyotes. <laughs> okay, it's actually, I'm pushing here, I think it's meant to be read as history. Something that actually happened in space-time long ago. That said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a completely natural, normal specimen of biological tree. And neither is the snake a completely natural reptile. For instance, the serpent spoke... Not sure the last time you've heard a talking snake. Okay, not because all snakes talked in Eden, this is important, but rather because Satan, a superterrestrial spiritual being, inhabited or possessed a snake. And the New Testament letter to the Romans, which is firmly grounded in history, clearly affirms that this serpent in the garden is a spiritual being named Satan. 
I think our problem here is just actually how we understand history and the spiritual realm in the West. Can I make a really broad, two broad sweeping generalizations and I'm going to get off this topic? <laughs> okay, for the comfort of us all. First, we make a mistake when we out of hand deny the existence of spiritual dimension. It is a limited, very ethnically Western view of the world to deny that there's a spiritual realm or dimension to things. Yes, spiritual beings like God and Satan cannot be detected by the scientific method, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. Science is methodologically set up only to detect physical and material things, not spiritual things like God or Satan. And secondly, when, when did historical events have to be proven scientifically? When did that start to happen as a litmus test? Like, you know, science involves the testing and retesting of the same phenomenon in order to prove that it's consistent, okay, that gets the same results. And there are plenty of historical events that we can't recreate in a Petri dish. Like the Holocaust that's constantly denied, for instance. Therefore, history actually relies on dependable, reliable testimonies, not on our scientific doubts. Okay. So I guess the question becomes for the skeptical still among us, which is totally fair. Do you and I believe that Genesis 3 is a reliable testimony? Well, perhaps one way to look at it, at whether it's reliable, is from the fallout of verses 1 through 6, that fallout, how it's described later in the passage, and whether that fallout of temptation and sin matches our present-day reality. So let's look at this a little bit emotionally now. And that's our second point, the outcome of Adam and Eve's temptation and sin called the fall, the fallout from not trusting God. And it's found in verses 7 through 19. For the sake of time, I'm really only going to focus on verses 7 through 13. We'll get back to the other verses later in the semester. Okay, in these verses, 7 through 13, we see the immediate consequences of not trusting God. Fear. Fear. We don't trust each other. How could we? I mean, look, think about if you were Adam or Eve and you just watched the other person reject God for the sake of personal advantage. How do you not think the hammer's coming? How do you not think you're going to be the next person that's going to be rejected? And when we feel this fear or this insecurity in our relationships, we all feel this, don't we? I mean, this is an, let's just get honest for a second. The closer we get to somebody, the more we feel vulnerable and exposed. And the more we worry in that vulnerability that that person's going to use or abuse or take advantage of that part of me. Or it might just simply be that nagging concern that we have with a group of friends that we're forming or we have that we really want to be around, that when they really get to know all of me, the real me, they're just going to run away. Like then I'm going to be really alone on a tiny campus full of people. And we feel this way because we no longer have that intimate and safe communion with God that we once had. And this leaves us, according to verse 7, naked and very much ashamed. Look, every one of us in this room right now, you and I feel spiritually and emotionally naked and ashamed a lot of the time. But I just have to illustrate this and make and this makes sense. Have you ever been seen naked? Have you ever had that happen to you in your adult life? I'm not talking about when you're five and sharing a bathtub with your cousin. <laughs> okay? Have you ever felt that red hot, naked shame? 
I'm going to tell you a story. I can't believe I'm going to tell you the story. <laughs> but I'm going to do it. I owe you. Okay, here it goes. One time, around this time in the semester, the third week, my freshman year, so maybe it sounds very familiar to some of you, um, at Davidson College, I was showering in a locker room, in the stadium locker room. I was on the soccer team. Well, just barely on the soccer team. I walked on as a backup goalkeeper. And so when the varsity team went away to travel that weekend, I stayed behind and I thought, I gotta get better at soccer. And so I did a morning workout, took some shots, tried to get better. And I thought, next time I'm gonna travel with them. And as I was lathering up with the soap and the water after the morning session and whistling maybe a nice tune, I heard the locker room punch code click through, being pushed. And at first I thought nothing of it, like just another JV player like me. But then the door of the locker room opened and I heard the sound of female voices descending the stairs. This is a true story. <laughs> I was terrified and I knew that once they got to the bottom of the staircase in the locker room, they'd have a wide open view of me naked in a group shower because there was just no door. <laughs> My nakedness would be on full display. And so they soon they descended the stairs and that train of cheerleaders, cheerleaders stopped right <laughs> as they got to the shower opening, and they literally like ran into each other's backs. <laughs> and there I was, this is true, on the ground in the fetal position. <laughs> facing the wall, with my arms covering my face. <laughs> and there they were, stunned and silent. <laughs> for like it felt like a minute finally after a long pause and them doing the math with the sound of the shower my backside glory <laughs> carried the two they realized <laughs> what is going on and they made a sound that I will never forget it was the sound of a slow building girl giggle that started at the front and carried all the way to the back at the very door of the, tra the train of cheerleaders in the locker room. And I've, I felt ashamed. <laughs> and I just waited for them to leave. I feel intense shame even 10 years later or more sharing that story with you. I still feel that shame. And I'm going to tell you something else. Even tonight, I feel that kind of shame, maybe not to that extent, the kind of shame I felt in front of the cheerleaders, naked on the floor, the tile, washing my ambitions to be cool away. Um, <laughs> I felt that blushing hot shame, and I feel that fear of getting hurt, still now, right here, right now, in front of you. And this is the spiritual and, emo and emotional cost. Uh, it's a cost that I can do nothing to cover. Dr. Brene Brown defines shame as the fear of disconnection, that I won't be worthy of connection. It's not guilt. It's not, I did something bad. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Shame is, I'm bad. I'm sorry. I am a mistake. It's that hunch that we all have deep down inside that I'm not enough or I'm too much. And so as we see in verse 7 and 8, this shame-induced fear immediately leads Adam and Eve and us to hide, to hide ourselves from God and to hide ourselves from other people. 
For Adam and Eve, his hiding looked like an improvised fig leaf loincloth. They might as well have been naked, let's be honest. <laughs> How well is that covering? And it looked also like, it looked like hiding, hitting for the, heading for cover in the thicket of trees. And look, whether you've been here three weeks or three years, you can start to think about what the fig leaves at Davidson are. That is, where are you and I performing? Who are we performing for? Are you stitching together an overpacked schedule and diving for cover in the basement carol of the library? Are we self-stitching a series of ideal relationships, close friends to meet our needs, and then the one, the best friend forever, or maybe the, the soulmate that will fill us in every nook and cranny? Or do you prefer to hide in plain sight in a crowd of people with music cranked up so you don't have to worry about what to say? Christian counselor Larry Crabb goes a step further and he says that your fig trees, my fig leaves, and that thicket of trees can even be our personalities. In his words, your personality is nothing more than a way you created to make the world work for you. It's your way of hiding in the world. Your personality is your way of hiding in the world, making the world work for you. That is my Myers-Briggs, Davidson's sacrosanct <laughs> Myers-Briggs, my Enneagram type, they can be a measurement of the way that I divert attention away from embarrassing, embarrassing parts of me and I highlight my gifts. But returning to the text here, verse 11 through 13 highlight the final behavior that fear and then shame and then hiding produce. Blame. Blame. So it goes fear, shame, hiding, blame. When confronted, Adam blames Eve directly and God indirectly for giving him Eve. And then when confronted, Eve blames the serpent. And this rings true in my life. When I'm confronted, especially about those parts of me I feel ashamed or vulnerable about, I begin the blame game and then some. Like just yesterday, fear and shame about my lack of expertise or my inability to be on time or end on time ever. These things make me feel rejection and I quickly find myself ducking and covering to hide, or if that doesn't work, or if I'm outed, like Adam and Eve here, I try to move someone else into the path of rejection. I try to find, my, I find myself making excuses to anybody and everybody who will hear, myself, God, or anyone else. But thankfully the story doesn't actually just end there. Thank God. It doesn't end with us naked, shamed, hiding, and blaming. No, God in his fierce love pursues us right where we're hiding in the trees with fig leaf loincloths. God asks a question he already knows the answer to. Where are you? He's omniscient. Okay, he's not asking, where are you? Where are you? You're, the loincloths are so deceiving. Okay, <laughs> oh, those trees are so thick. Okay, he's asking, where are you? Again, according to Larry Crabb, God's asked this question because he wanted Adam to realize where Adam was. Only exposed problems motivate people to ask for help. Only exposed problems motivate people to ask for help. This is why God does not grind Adam to a pulp on the spot. This is why God doesn't give a lecture with his finger wagging in someone's face. This is why he doesn't spank Adam and Eve. This is why he doesn't give them the silent treatment. They are in our shame and in our guilt 
and our fear. No, God wants to help us. He wants to help us so much that he actually pursues you and me. He pursues, he protects, he provides, and he promises a relationship as far as the curse is found. In the words of a friend of mine, David Speakman, human sin is stubborn, but it's not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer to win its way. In verses 21 and 22, we see this stubbornness, this healing of God's affection for us played out. And that's our point three, very briefly. Verse 21 tells us that God is doing something about our naked shame. Look, in the garden of in the garden, God clothes humanity's physical nakedness, and he does it with animal skins, right? A sacrificed animal is made to give skin. In the New Testament, we're told that God clothes our spiritual nakedness. And he's clothes our spiritual nakedness, he clothes our shame, but he only does this with the sacrifice of his son Jesus. And nothing is asked of us except that we allow ourselves to be clothed. That's it. Stand still and get a hug. So we substitute ourselves for God, but notice this. God substitutes himself for us. Why? How in the world? Because Jesus Christ, the promised offspring of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, covers our shame. The Gospel of Matthew tells us this really interesting story. Jesus is tempted. It's a temptation scene very similar to Genesis 3. Same Satan, just like Adam and Eve were tempted. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus stands fast and he holds on to God's word. The same Jesus, Eve's offspring, went to the fearful cross naked and ashamed. And there he suffered. He was bruised. He died. But history tells us that he actually lived in the end. He was resurrected. He rose from the grave in triumph. And he stomped out Satan's head and he stomped out Satan's lies. And therefore, when we trust in Jesus' ability to withstand sin and to conquer temptation, we can actually honestly stand before God and stand before friends and stand before family and be covered. We can wear Jesus' skin in a way. Even and especially there with all of me exposed for the world to see, God doesn't hesitate. God doesn't run away. He runs us down. He asks, Sid, what are you up to? <laughs> then, he re- then God rejoices over us with uncomfortably loud singing. You're covered by Christ. You're safe here. You've got nothing to hide. But more in this, and more in the way that Jesus is restoring our relationships, and what that actually looks like, how, like, how does that work out in real life? More on that in the next few weeks. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways that you sing over us. Thank you for the ways that you let us stand. But you don't let us leave in shame. I, Father, I pray that you'd meet some of us here tonight in a way that we've not been met in a long time, or maybe ever. I pray that you would convince us um, that you would help us to feel your pursuit that we would know your care, that you wrestle with the ways that, that we hide and show us that, like a little kid, 
we get found out in a, in a hug. I pray that you'd be with us in that way. Meet us in the third week. We need you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.